Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam. And today, another question. What is the best generic RPG? So, I had a bunch of notes that I did not write down for this one, so I'm going to get a lot of them out as early as I can before I forget them. And the one big one is, when you talk about a generic RPG, at what layer are you talking about generic? Interesting. So, uh, the one that's that's obvious is, in play, you can do anything with the system as given. Mm -hmm. But the less obvious one is, here's the system as a starting point, and it's really easy to kind of move the system into other genres. So th that ties into the point that I wanted to open with, which awesome. is that either... Uh, well, okay, let's start out with the most important point, which is that there are no generic games. Fully generic, correct. Um, they all make some kind of assumption. Well, and really, uh, let, let's start uh, even a step further back, since our audience is not necessarily always role-playing people. Right. Let's start with what is uh, a generic role-playing game. Um, and that generally, it's a term that gets tossed around a lot, especially because there's a system called GURPS, the Generic Universal Role-Playing System. Uh, that has basically the idea that uh, it's a game that you can do anything with, um, right. where anything is kind of broadly defined. Uh, and like you said, it kind of tends to come in two places, I think. There's right. kind of this setting agnostic, which is like, oh, we can uh, do any kind of action-adventure we want. It could be a Victorian action-adventure or a superhero action-adventure. Right. You can go the places that you want with the characters that you want, yep. but you're going to be doing the same kind of things. Yeah, and so the the way that it tends to get used in a lot of gaming is kind of, here's the one game, you learn this one game, and you'll be able to play anything you want. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't exist. No, no, I am, I am fully on with you there. Yeah, uh, because basically any game that's functional enough to actually be playable is going to give you some constraints to work with. It's going to make some things easier than others, and that's not truly generic. You can't do anything you want, uh, but... In, in another way, though, like, you really could do anything but with any system. Like, there are people that play D&D, throw the book away, and then play this fully political, interesting intrigue system. They're that's not really... my exact point. Awesome. Yeah. So th that's the second point. All <laughs> games are generic. For sure. Um, so no games are generic, but also all games are generic. Because the other way that people use it is it's a system for making the game you want. This right. is what GURPS actually is. It's a huge... Well... I, there's two versions of GURPS. But one of them is basically, it's a framework for then making the game that you want. It's a game-making kit. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, every game is a game-making kit because all games are basically... Open source isn't quite the right word, but like there, there's no way to give you an RPG in a way that does not also expose how the RPG works. I think, I think open source is actually a better word than you think. Um, because the idea with open source, as far as code is concerned, is here's the product that you can run and do something with, uh, and if it doesn't do exactly what you want, you can open it up, change something, and make it work better. Uh, and with RPGs, there's no way to give you the... Well, uh, there's no good way to give you the RPG without also giving you a way to change it to do what you want, because it's, you know, face-to-face, tabletop, you know, well, analog. Even, even more than that, it relies on people to basically mm -hmm. execute the game. So for you to understand the game well enough to run it, right. you, you kind of implicitly can see ways to modify it. Right. Um, if nothing else, you can modify it in pretty trivial ways. And then, the, and this is another point where degrees of genericness kind of come in. There's games that it's easier to see all the mechanics laid bare and think, oh, I can just tweak this little thing and make it more my game. So that, I think, is the other thing that people are talking about when they talk about generic games right. is how kind of close to the metal you get. Like, how obvious is it how all of this 
works together. Because Burning Wheel, for example, is not a very generic game because right. hacking it is not easy. Well, actually, that leads me to my first runner-up because I think we'll let's alternate runner-ups and okay. ramp to the to the number one. Sure. Uh, and my first runner-up is Mouse Guard, uh, which. After I, I just said that. Yeah, that's why I've got I've got to go right there. Well, not Burning Wheel. Like I couldn't do this with Burning Wheel, but the Mouse Guard kind of rule set. Uh, I have done Mouse Guard the rule set in uh, kind of 1800s uh, naval uh, game because my cousin and my dad were are huge fans of this kind of genre, mm-hmm. uh, the Horatio Hornblower kind of kind of fiction. And so they really wanted to play a game like that. And I was like, okay, what are important to those things? And I started making those skills. And, you know, what kind of things do you talk about with your characters? And I made those into traits. And, and we just kind of hacked our way through this, this screwy kind of mouse guardy thing. And the way that mouse guard does skill improvements, I didn't have to care too much about which skills were always going to be important versus never. Yep. The way it does conflicts, it was relatively easy to say, okay, we're going to do a ship-to-ship battle. Uh, let's fit that into the conflict rules, and that was straightforward. It was a very, very cool game to hack. They loved it a whole bunch, but I never wrote anything down. So, yep. Uh, so yeah, it's really weird because Mouse Guard, the book, the system as written, is definitely super genre specific. And if you play the game exactly as written, you are going to end up with that kind of a game. But it lets me see the metal. Yep. So I can mess with it. it. It exposes the concepts that you can modify them, and you can modify them on the fly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have some good stories about modifying on the fly that I'm sure will come up later. But I, I've even actually hacked Burning Wheel that way, sure, in a very mild way, in kind of the setting generic way. We've taken Burning Wheel and moved it to uh, like colonial America. Um, firearms and stuff like that start coming in, uh, like. Of course, all the elves and dwarves and stuff. I, I actually very rarely play Burning Wheel with elves and dwarves. Or with multiple and, races at yeah, all, yeah. Yeah. It, I, I actually find just the human section of it to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the yeah, story that it's telling is the same. It's, still it's just very in much. this different, different yeah. space. And in a lot of ways, Mouse Guard is mice who get sent on kind of missions right. uh, on a larger scale. And that's part of the great thing uh, and that doing was the, the naval it, stuff with right, it. Right, the Horatio Homeblower kind of thing was, oh, wait, well, my dad was the captain and my cousin was this other person uh, on the ship. I can't remember his rank at the time. And they were going out on missions for... So it, it felt the same as far as story-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very cool. It was fun. I should do that again. That, that's really good. Um, so my last runner-up is kind of... I, I actually have an entry here for uh, The Usual Suspects, uh, is how mm. it's headed in my notes. As in Gerb's Fate... Uh, and D20. Yeah, and D20. Exactly. Um, so these are all games that... Uh, actually, all of them I, I like to varying degrees. Like they're all easy to recommend, but they're all such go-to generic games, and they're not as generic as they seem. Uh, Fate to so me, cover, yeah, in order, and yes. start with GURPS because you've already talked about GURPS. That makes sense. Uh, keeping us on topic, we're gonna have like a real uh, trying so hard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, GURPS, since I've already mentioned it, the mm-hmm. generic universal role-playing system, uh, which is uh, basically the the core system here is um, a relatively complex in a lot of ways uh, system that attempts to model a whole bunch of things. Um, it uh, uses dice on kind of a, a, interestingly, on a closed scale. Like your, your skills basically past a certain point are improving in a different way, which is interesting because it seems like if you're going to do a generic thing that could have like the Hulk and Ant-Man 
in it. Uh, you'd want you know your your scale to be kind of unbounded. You need people who are very weak and very strong, but it actually does that a little bit differently. Um, but the really thing that the thing that comes really with GURPS is that there's one way to play it straight up as a generic game, which is uh, or generic in the sense of it kind of has a genre but not a specific setting, which is as kind of the mashup game. Uh, and this is one of my favorite ways to run it, is you take GURPS... That's the way GURPS wants to be run. And you basically uh, often do, like, fictional characters or historical people. There's actually uh, books uh, in the GURPS line on various specific fictional settings, uh, like Discworld, or um, specific historical settings with, you know, named personas. Uh, and you take a whole bunch of those, and then you say, all of you are in some kind of crazy, like, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, uh, trying to stop Darth Vader from uh, crashing the Hindenburg, uh, and your Shakespeare, and the Hulk, and Captain Picard. And if that sounds awesome to you, that's because it is awesome. It is awesome. But it's definitely always going to be that kind of story in, in, in the general outline. There's going to be an action-adventure story with lots of combat, and all gonzo. Well, and it's going to... This is the point where GURPS doesn't work as much for me. It's going to become very much about who is stronger, the Hulk or Superman. Right. Like, it's it's all about trying to represent these characters in really exact ways and then finding uh, kind of the, the unexpected outcomes of that because the rules have all these interactions. Yeah, um, to give you an idea, if you've never played GURPS, the normal GURPS system uh, for character creation is point by... Point by with three hundred points, I believe is is the sounds about right. Is the setup, and three hundred points, um, you can take things that are worth a point in GURPS yeah. or give you a point in GURPS. And it, if you go crazy, and you've told this story before, Sage, if you go crazy, you can go down to well, I need exactly three more points, and what can I do? Uh, and most of that stuff is not going to matter to your character in the general run. Yep. Uh, it's really going to matter how many strength points do you have, and did you happen to roll 3d6 under that number? Yep, exactly. Uh, it, so, I mean, the, the kind of outcome that comes out of it in a superhero game, um, I wasn't actually part of this game, but it's a friend of mine's game, they had somebody who was invulnerable and somebody who could fly, and they realized the, the rules for gravity meant that their best way of beating somebody was to fly up the invulnerable person and then drop them. I think, I think rules for gravity are one of my <laughs> least favorite things. <laughs> About about role playing games, like every time every time I read some exploit, you know, in massive scare quotes about an RPG, it's always well. See, what I'm going to do is teleport the Tarrasque, you know, twenty stories up and drop it on the person, and because of how the falling rules work, blah 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 blah, and it's like, yep. oh, it's just a waste. Yep, just a waste of book space. So yeah, GURPS, um, the the. Strongest things to recommend. The other strongest thing to recommend GURPS for is the line of supplements, which oh, are totally. all these amazingly detailed looks at either kind of fictional genres. One of my favorites is Reign of Steel, which is kind of a Terminator future thing, um, or specific historical eras, or specific all specific fictional places like Discworld. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a huge Discworld fan growing up, and the Discworld GURPS book made me so excited because it's got um, art by my favorite Discworld artist whose name is escaping me at the moment uh, and it stats out all the characters and has these notes about how to kind of like run a Discworldy game but then the actual details come down to like oh can I get another point of magic by making my character uh, uglier right um, 
and it just doesn't quite click, but the source material is so good. Right. And if you, in some ways, it's great to just buy GURP supplements and read them as uh, gamer-oriented history books, kind of. Um, yeah, it's an interesting system. So D20, then. Uh, I was actually going to save that one because it transitions into my first real recommendation. I mean, all these games are games that I like. Well, but... okay, so then Fate. Go ahead. Yeah, Fate was the one I was going to cover next. Fate uh, is... A game that recently, uh, well, I guess a couple years ago now, released the uh, Fate Core Edition, which is kind of the most generic version of the game. It's a system that's existed in other games in various ways for quite a while, but uh, the Fate Core is the way that you get basically the most generic Fate. Uh, and then it has these books of how to use it for other things. Um, it's very in my experience, related to... Uh, it, it always sticks with me as Indiana Jones movies. Uh, because if you look at Indiana Jones movies, all the action sequences very carefully set up all the things that are there for the characters to take advantage of, and then throughout the sequence of those, those kind of all get go off and get used to put the characters into a new and interesting situation. So you know you in the, uh, it's the start of the um, the Last Crusade where young Indiana Jones goes through basically establishing every fact we know about Indiana Jones. He gets afraid of snakes, he gets a whip, he gets a hat, uh, and all these things are set up by very clear action scenes, um, which, if you're looking for that kind of cinematic action, is awesome. It's not something that I actually like to play that much, but uh, it's an easy recommendation. The big Fate game that I played was Diaspora, mm -hmm. uh, which is Traveler Fate, basically. Um, and I can see that. I can see that. The the part of that might just be that when you play, Fate doesn't give you very much uh, support as far as genre. And Diaspora tries to do that with the skill list uh, and with some of the, you know, the way that it sets up the initial system, um, as in planetary system. Um, but it doesn't push hard enough to say, okay, you're going to play a game like this now. And because it doesn't push so hard, it leaves you back on Fate's kind of We'll play whatever you want, which means that you have to improv, and improv says do what's comfortable, which, since we just came out of D&D &D 4 at that time, mm -hmm. was, well, I guess we're going to go fight stuff. And Well, the thing that I think leads to that kind of Indiana Jones-style action is uh, that the way that basically aspects... Work. Sure. Let's talk about the fate system a little bit uh, because it is it is a really cool system. Yeah. Basically, the fate system is uh, there's some points and you roll some cool dice and you're checking thresholds and whatever. The really awesome stuff is that there's a currency of fate points that the DM and all the players have, uh, and you may pay fate points to get into or out of trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of that trouble is related to your aspects, which are extremely freeform. Things like I can fly. Or, uh, I know the magic of my forefathers, or uh, my sword burns with the eternal flame. And if you can say that you're doing something related to that particular aspect, like, oh yeah, my sword is a piece of fire, so, you know, it's lit. Uh, if, it's, if it's just true related to the aspect, nothing happens, it's just true, you know, the, it's part of the fiction you assume. But if the DM goes, well, you know, that sword's going to get you into trouble when it lights all of these curtains on fire... Uh, the, then points will pass hands. The DM will hand you a point, and you can accept it if you're okay with that trouble happening. Or you can give the DM a point if you're like, no, I really need that trouble to not happen. And that's really the core of the game, is kind of these interesting aspects 
interacting with the fiction. But the the other element of that that I think leads into the Indiana Jones effect is that other things can have aspects as well. Right, and you, you can, can add aspects to things. Exactly. And the, the fake golden rule is that everything is a character, so you add aspects to basically everything. Like, well, if we did lit, light those curtains on fire, well, the curtains can be added. You can put an aspect on the curtains that are, the curtains are on or the, fire. The room could have an aspect, flaming wall of flame or right. something like that. Right. Um, and that... <clears throat> Uh, at least in my experience, often adds up to this kind of like you know you've established that uh, the tank is turned the tank turret is turned off to the side, and so you're like oh I'm going to use that aspect to then uh, run run them into the the cliff thing and all we talked about the character sheet problem before yeah. right I don't know what to do let me look at my character sheet and in fate your character sheet is also all of these aspects that have been added to things in the scene or the other players. And the game encourages you to jump off of those things to make interesting stuff happen. Mm -hmm. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, if the tank turret is turned to the side, you are going to want to use that because that's how the game is built. Yep. And so this and the, is... The, the other part of that that I think you're getting on is it's very seldom that you will end up with an aspect applied to a person that is... I have them, you know, confused, so now I can tell them something that will make the political situation different. Most of the aspects are visible. Most of the aspects are tangible, uh, because those are the easiest ones to get at, and which leads you to do this kind of adventure -y. That's an interesting way to look at it. Like, right. I hadn't thought about that, uh, but yeah, most aspects that we end up with, I, and I, I wonder if there is an element of playstyle there, but uh, I've played with fate with a number of people, and either I'm really steering the game, or... It's a little, at least a common interpretation of it. Because you, uh, you could play Fate. You could play Fate and disallow or make tangible aspects harder to create. Or really push on intangible aspects. Mm -hmm. Stuff like this person's confused or this person's drunk or this person's uh, really likes this person. Or this relationship is established or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it's really uncommon and those are harder to think of. Hard to see. And the interesting thing that comes out of this is that fate, uh, to me, always feels very much like a, a bit like directing a movie while kind of acting in it at the same time. Like it, it's cinematic in the sense that it seems like an action movie, which is part of why I keep on going to Indiana Jones because that's the kind of action movie as well. It's not like Ghostbusters action so much as it is Indiana Jones, um, which is great. It's not something that my group goes to all that often uh, or, you know, I tend to go to if I'm playing with other people, partially because um, I the system of aspects and compels and all this uh, fills in stuff that we don't need as much help with. Sure. Um, and <laughs> my my friends will tell you from our gaming experience that anytime I see compels, I start ranting because I tend to like to get my character into trouble. Like, if my flaming sword is going to light the the curtains on fire... I don't really want to be able to buy myself out of that. Like, if I'm making that choice and running in there, that's the logical consequences of my action, and I want to play a game where those uh, those consequences happen, not where I say, actually, I want things to be okay for my character. Yeah, but, but in Fate, what you do is you say, that sounds awesome, give me the point. Exactly, but the fact that uh, if I... that uh, I feel like I'm getting involved at the wrong point in that. Uh, sure. uh, and the entire thing is a little redundant to how we play. If, you know, the, the the slight flip side of that, the burning wheel instincts, which can also get you in trouble and also right. can tie into a uh, cycle of resources that you then have to do things with your character, works great for us. Because I don't mind getting my character in trouble by the, the things that the character would do. I, in fact, it's 
probably one of my favorite things to do in role-playing games. Uh, but I don't feel this need to then say, oh, actually, I, I don't want to do that. Like, right. that, that extra safety check there is not something that I need. Um, which is totally a personal choice, but that's why we're hosting this podcast. I'm, just, I'm, just, about. I'm, thinking, about, I'm thinking about other fake core games, uh, and as far as, you know... How would you build a fake... Because the idea with fake core is there's the fake core system and you can totally play that. Um, but it's much more interesting if you play one of the genre-specific ones. Uh, and some of them are, go the full GURPS, okay, this is just going to be insane pulp adventure mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and I'm trying to think if you could build a fake game that was really set up to be a political intrigue game or something that wasn't action-adventure I mean, uh, I, I and how you would do that in the book. I think it's fairly possible because a lot of Fate's rules for resolving things, kind of like Mouse Guards, yeah. you can apply in very many different ways but use the same concepts. So you don't have to come up with, uh, like, as a comparison, if mm -hmm. you tried to use D&D 4th Edition's combat rules to resolve a social situation, you'd have a really hard time mapping, like, right. what do these rules mean in a social conflict? Whereas if you use... Fate's consequences. Fate's consequences and uh, basically everything you do in Fate. Like, it's one of those games where there isn't really a shift to combat per se. I mean, there, there kind of is. In core, in core there really isn't. They, you, Pretty you, much. you might start drawing up a map, but exactly. there's, there's also maps for social conflict in Fate. Exactly. So. And that's part of it. Like A lot of these concepts map really well, and Fate's usage of maps is, is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's one of those games that I, I really recommend to other people, but isn't really my thing. It doesn't provide the tools that you need. Yeah, I, I, a lot of its tools are redundant to the things that we already do, uh, to the point that sometimes it can get a little bit in the way to the way that I usually play. Um, okay, then D20. D20. D20 is, uh, in some ways, it's probably a bigger generic game than GURPS. Um, yes. Well, I mean, this goes back to kind of the concept of, of at what point do you talk about generic? Is it play generic or system generic? And D20, the system, has been used for everything. Yes. Uh, so D20 uh, originated basically as Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. Um, and it's... Uh, the name comes from the fact that you mostly use a d20, you roll something, you add some numbers or subtract some numbers, and see if you beat some target number. So micro rant, that's my least favorite mechanic of any game ever. Okay, yep. continue. Uh, I, the, I agree. It's a mechanic that in a lot of ways can sometimes feel unsatisfying, especially when big things come down to it, uh, partially because it's so binary, but it's also so straightforward and direct and easy to then apply to other things, which I uh, D20 to me has always felt super logical and um, it's all thought out in a almost an engineering kind of way. Um, you know, you start from these core things and you keep on building them out and you give this framework that you can hang a whole bunch of things on. Um, the, the kind of with the two generics that we're talking about, um, the setting generic, you can do all kinds of things as long as it's kind of for the most part, a uh, advancement, like a zero to hero kind of thing, um, because so much of D20 is built into getting bigger numbers to add to that 20-sided die. So let's rewind a paragraph. Uh, is Do you think D20 was the first game, D&D uh, 3.0 was the first game that had a core mechanic? Like Because, because one of the things that's pretty common in games now, uh, and I don't know when this started happening, is... Okay, here's my game. 
Um, the one really big thing you need to know about my game is that most of the time you're going to do this and that's going to tell you whether you succeed or not. And here's a bunch of little tiny rules that apply that. And before 3, like, D&D uh, was not that way. D&D was, well, when something happens, uh, if it's in combat, you're probably going to roll this stuff. And if you're doing this, then you might roll this stuff. And most of the time, ask your DM and he'll come up with something. Mm -hmm. or, or she'll come uh, up with something. There are earlier examples, partially because one of them is on my list. Sweet. Um... Oh. Did it call it out, though, as, like, here ah. is the thing, here is the core mechanic, or what, did it just happen to be good design? So, the, the problem, um, well, the reason that I wanted to do D20 is to segue into D6. Okay, sweet. Um, so, D6 is the first of the things that I uh, more strongly recommend. I recommend everything that I've talked about so far. <laughs> but, um, We're going to talk about things that we don't recommend, except for one of the earlier episodes. Yeah, and I mean, if we don't recommend them, I think we say it pretty clearly. These, uh, D20, Fate... GURPS, all recommended. Yeah, uh, totally good with games. Them. Yeah. Uh, but D6, GURPS, oh, by the way, GURPS Lite. If you want to take a look at GURPS but don't want to have to shell out a ton of cash for books yet, uh, GURPS Lite is on the Steve Jackson website, and it's really cool, like, three-pager. And in, in a lot of ways, it's... It's I, most I of what you want there. from the system, yeah. Um, so for the... Just a slight tangent on that. Uh, Discworld, there's a hardcover copy of Discworld GURPS, which I still have my copy because I love it. And it basically uh, comes with GURPS Lite in it. Right. Because usually with GURPS, you buy kind of a core rule book with which, uh, which is really just the game building kit. Right. Uh, and then you buy the setting book that kind of, or genre Zombies, book or whatever. Discworld, yeah, that, yeah. That fills in the thing you want to do. Um, so Discworld comes with GURPS Lite so that it becomes kind of a self-contained game. Uh, if you know a lot of other things. Um, but then gets frustrating because the book's written assuming that you use some of the advanced things that aren't in GURPS Lite, but then GURPS Lite's in there and you're like, oh, I kind of know this, but is this thing that it's referencing <laughs> actually important or is it crap I don't want to deal with? Uh, it's usually stuff you don't want to deal with. D6. Okay. D6. Uh, the... I, I tend to like it better than D20 for doing some similar things, um, especially in the way that you can get it for free. So D20 was released under an open license, so you can go online right now, um, just uh, Google D20 SRD, and you'll find a number of sites that will give you basically all the rules to it. Not always in the easiest to like read front to back way, but it'll at least be something that you can read through and say, oh, okay, this is how the game works. Um, D6 was originally used for... Uh, Star West End Star Wars, I believe, was the first one. I may have my timeline wrong there because it's been used for several other licensed games. Um, but Star Wars was in 1987. Um, I am actually most familiar with it in the SRD form, which is part of why I can't say in the first printing in particular, because I haven't gotten a first printing, uh, if D6 Star Wars referred to this as a core mechanic. Sure. Uh, but basically, you it's... Um, a fistful of D6, kind of, is most of what you're doing, and then you're adding and subtracting numbers, but the... Uh, so is it is it a dice pool system, or is it add all of the D6 it, together? You're adding all the D6s together, okay. uh, going for a target number, basically. Um, this one, I didn't have as much time to reread it and to make sure that I'm getting all my facts right, but I'm pretty confident in those facts. Um, and the things that I like about it is, especially if you're going off of the SRD version... Uh, it goes into so much less detail. So in particular, the thing that comes to mind is falling rules that you brought up earlier. D20 has falling rules, and there's all these rules in the book for if you're falling from this height with these things to stop you, here's how much damage you take per 10 feet fallen. And what, it... what did you land on? What feats do you have? Do you exactly. have this skill? Would you like to roll it? Exactly. So it has all these things that for most of the games... Uh, 
I run, I don't need, and I would say in most people's games are better resolved by the GM saying, That's oh, going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that's going to hurt uh, either here's how much damage you're taking, or, oh, you have a cool idea to get out of it, well, let's see how that works out, right. or just, like, you fell off of a blimp, you're dead. Right. Um, all of those are very good answers that uh, GMs develop. Uh, like, a, a very good game would help a GM get into giving those answers, but a lot of GMs learn that anyway and can do it if the system just kind of doesn't get in the way. Sure. But once you have the D20 system that says, oh, these are all your falling damages, uh, either you have to explicitly say, like, I'm just going to throw this all out and make it up, which is a pretty decent way to do it. And yeah, well, then it's legal, you but, you know, that goes... Assuming you use the system as written... It's... Exactly. You're getting system that you don't need. Right. Um, or somebody at the table is going to be like, well, actually, the book says... <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, hey, hey, Joe, you know all the falling rules. Uh, how much damage does Lucy take? Well, she takes, excuse me, one second, 35.26 damage, uh, unless she's falling onto 27 flower petals, <laughs> at which point the rounding changes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and like that, that stuff that I don't need. So right. by going from the Open D6 rules, which you can find online, um, are uh, just Google Open D6. You'll sure. First result. Um, unfortunately, also horribly formatted. Uh, but it, they are... They get to the core of what you need a lot faster than D20 does. Cool. Um, and they kind of take the things that we've been talking about D20, basically roll something, add some numbers, see if you succeed. Here, you know, if you've succeeded by a lot, uh, it has an idea that you can succeed by a lot, which is a nice thing to have in a game because it brings in kind of degrees of success and room for the GM to say, ooh, that's an interesting, here's an interesting thing that happens. Um, basically boils down to the things that a lot of people expect from role-playing games, which are rolling some dice to figure out how actions happen. It's pretty much just that in the Open D6 system, which is really convenient. Because if you're looking for a generic system and you already know RPGs, that's probably what you're looking for, is just like a reasonable dice mechanic that can be applied to a lot of things, uh, With which is exactly what D6 gives you, but D20... Uh, gives you a whole lot of other things. There are um, True 20, which is kind of a fork of D20, gives you a little bit more of just kind of a just rely on this one thing. Um, and then there's like Micro Light D20 uh, and all these other forks that give you a little bit more of that. Um, but I like D6 partially because the uh, multiple dice helps give an interesting curve to results. Um, and also because I kind of love that it's an old system that's well that is still getting used uh, and the cool thing is you can go out to use bookstores and find um, DC Adventures and Ghostbusters and Star Wars and all these games that were based on it if you want a more kind of detailed approach on it sure well that leads to my other runner up which is also we've mentioned slightly which is Fate Accelerated mm -hmm. because Fate Accelerated fits on a bookmark uh, and it gives you tools to do something um, you can't just play Fate Accelerated. It's it's like here here are some ways to re to build a game, uh, but you you better build a game. Uh, and and I feel like that's going to give you a whole bunch of space here. So uh, because we talked a little bit about Fate, but not super much, um, Fate Accelerated. Uh, so the original Fate Core stuff says here build out a skill pyramid. Here is a list of skills. Specific Fate games will come up with skills for you. Fate Accelerated says, screw that. Here are six things that you might, six ways that you might come at a problem. Uh, just give yourself kind of a score here. No problem. And then uh, aspects, like you don't need any space on the bookmark for that because the people are going to make them up anyways. Uh, and everything else are, well, how do you apply approaches and aspects to problems? Mm -hmm. um, 
the big thing about Fade Accelerated is that uh, even though it fits on a bookmark, it's still relatively hackable. So like those six approaches are going to change what kind of game you show up with. Uh, the problem that I find with a lot of uh, generic systems is that they go the, to be generic, we need to have 50,000 skills mm-hmm. um, so that if you want to do something, we cover it. And the great thing about Accelerated is that it's like, no, you can, you can know the entire system just by scanning down the bookmark. Uh, and here are six approaches which basically map to D&D, uh, to, to the D&D attributes. But if you want a game that's about something else, you can come up with six approaches that make sense in terms of that world. And then everybody knows exactly what kind of thing you're doing at that point. And that allows you to do aspects and, and you know, challenges that are appropriate to your stuff. Mm-hmm. Because if your approaches are things like strength, uh, then you're going to come up with aspects that make sense in terms of a world where you're going to use strength to overcome problems. But if your approaches are things like guile uh, and, and hidden plans and so on, then you come up with aspects that are things like, I knew the person that designed this system or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Yeah, the, the thing that I see a lot with uh, Fate Accelerated um, and a lot of smaller games in general is that they're still leveraging a lot of kind of gamer knowledge. Yeah. Um, you can give them to people who, at, at least, if you have at least one person who kind of gets how to do gaming, uh, and especially if they get it pretty well, that's all you need. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that talking about core mechanics, Fate Accelerated is not a system. It's a core mechanic. Yeah. And so you come up with the, your full system mm-hmm. around Fate Accelerated. But since Fate Accelerated is the core mechanic, it's relatively easy to hook people up with that. Yep. Um, but yeah, you can't just sit down, pull the bookmark out, and go, okay, we're going to play a game now. Uh, you, better, you have to have a full system behind that. Yeah. Um, so my next runner-up is... Uh, a game that I've actually been dying to talk about, and it fits really well here, Yay. Um, called Mortal Coil. Uh, so Mortal Coil uh, by Brennan Taylor. I was about to say Brennan Reese and get it wrong. Uh, 2006. Um, it's generic. Uh, it's not generic in the, the genre sense at all. It's very clearly a game about magic, but it's generic in the setting sense of you could go with a lot of... Uh, as long as there's kind of a mystical ability. I've actually wondered if you could apply it to kind of a cyber hacky thing as well. Um, but the the examples in the book are uh, kind of more typical fantasy, um, like a modern urban fantasy or a Tolkien-esque or kind of a, a more Norse, um, things like that. The thing that I think makes it uh, well... The the reason that I think of it as generic is that the rules of magic are things that you write down and modify through play. Nice. So you kind of have this... uh, These are the things that are true about magic, uh, and they'll develop as the game progresses, um, which creates this feeling of, like, we could play... It feels generic in the fact that when we sit down to play, the world is still being filled in, and we can fill it in a lot of ways. So the things like uh, you cannot use magic to directly kill somebody, uh, you cannot use magic to create gold, you can use magic to transmute an element into another element, that kind of thing? Along those lines. Cool. So all those, uh, the things that make magic feel really cool in, uh, like, Earthsea or something like that, you're you're getting elements of that, um, you know... If I have your true name, uh, you cannot resist my magic. Still like that, um, and the the actual the resolution is diceless, and it 
actually I'm not quite as much a fan of it. Um, the the thing that I really love about the game, and which I I for a long time tried to hack into other games, were the kind of uh, the this common sheet where you track what is true about something big and undiscovered, um, and it it feels more applicable to magic. Like some other games will do kind of a a note sheet about you know things we know about the world or something. It's straight up aspects. It, it's it is kind of like aspects, but uh, it isn't going aspects of this uh, currency around them. This is yeah, stating things that are true. Aspects don't just have the currency. They don't just hey, have the currency. No, no, no. It's it comes up a lot in discussion about aspects, especially like on Reddit. Every other week, somebody asks this. If you say that this thing, you know, if you say something in an aspect, like, if I have a true name, you can't resist my magic, mm-hmm. yeah, you, there's a point system there, but if I use your true name, you can't resist my magic. There's no point exchange. It's just true in the fiction. True, but the, the difference is uh, in, and this is, again, the thing that is yet less useful to me, is the economy around it. I don't need the economy around it, so the fact that they're one that still exists, right, right. when I play, I'm kind of like, eh, I... I, we basically don't end up dealing with that. Uh, we try to keep the economy going by, like, when that thing gets you in trouble, you get a point. But we don't really do the, like, oh, can you? are you uh, declining it and paying your point? Right, right, right. But you, you end up... So, uh, yeah, I want to talk about Mortal Kombat more. Uh, but you end up getting a whole bunch of points in that kind of game, which is great. And then you spend them all to get your gigantic thing. That's that's the way you're supposed to be spending points in fate. It's not supposed to be refusal. It's the refusal is a steam valve for for the system. It's it's not the main way to spend points. I totally agree, and uh, it's just a steam valve that we don't need. Hey, um, mortal coil, mortal things coil. that are true. Yeah, so that that is the main thing that I want to talk about here is that it's uh, a generic game in the sense that you you start out with an idea of what you want the world to be, and it can fill in and fit with that. Sure. Um, the, that seems like a really awesome game for a long campaign. Yeah, I, I've always, unfortunately, I haven't gotten to do a longer game with it. Um, I think I've only done con sessions with it, actually. How many things do you add per session-ish? Um, you basically start out with some, and then the rest are filled in. Um, you end up with a... F- I don't know how much it changes over time, actually, is the tough thing to say. Sure. Um, I would imagine that it slows down. It'd be really interesting if after, like, three years of a campaign in real time, uh, you end up with this book full of, these are all the things that are true about magic. Hey, welcome to our game. Here, here's the here's the session guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, that would be great. I, I would Google yeah. and see if somebody has posted their I like, would play that game, for yeah. sure. Uh, and the I thought that this would be really cool to apply in other ways. One, uh, one of the earliest things that I hacked together, which I've never even played, uh, was using this idea in a game of um, everybody's playing a mage of different schools mm-hmm. uh, and you're a bit more like Harry Potter like you're learning how things work and the player to your right is maintaining a secret list of rules that you don't know yeah totally and as you deduce those rules uh, you can use them to your benefit basically uh, and so like if if they write the, these things down they're kind of co-GMing you there would probably still be a central GM like this is a game that I never even got on the table but this was the whole idea that all these secret things are coming up uh, and you're you're learning them through kind of trial and error in the very oh, Harry I'm, Potter I'm posting that on Thursday and so the way that I'm going to post it though is uh, basic I'm going to read up on Mortal Coil because I'm curious uh, it's just that the the rules of magic when they get altered or changed or added 
that's not going to be a public discussion. Oh yeah, that was that's how I thought that. But but it's not going to be co GMs or anything. It's just when you add something or something changes, it's the GM that finds out and writes it down, and they maintain the overall list. Yeah. And if you do something that breaks one, or you try and add one that's inconsistent, then the GM has resolution rules to say, yeah, that that doesn't work. Well, so that actually I feel is not that different than how GMing often works. You're often kind of starting out with a few things that you know about the setting, and then a player is like, oh man, can uh, like. We know that putting somebody's heart in a fire is uh, gives you huge magical power. A dragon's heart has to be more powerful. And you as the GM are kind of like, is that a true thing? And you probably figure that out in the moment because you're like, oh, yeah, dragon, big heart, sure. Or you're like, oh, no, it's actually to do with, like, the uh, soul of the person that remains there. So it doesn't matter how big they are. Anyway. Right, but what, what you could do with the system is make it so that the GM has secret roles that are, you think it's true, it's not actually true. True, but the, the, the same with the GM. Like, uh, if I'm GMing that game, if the players ask me that, I'm going to say, uh, assuming that like this kind of stuff comes up in Dungeon World, they ask me, right. like, is the heart of a dragon going to be more powerful than a ritual? Uh, I would say, well, how do you know? And if they have, like, a, oh, yeah, we established that my character is a dragon man, so I'd be like, okay, yeah, you probably know this. Here's the truth. If they say, well, I mean, I'm a wizard. I probably know something about that. Spout lore. Or, you know, we grew up in the Dragon Hills. Spout lore. Right. And if otherwise, the system... but wait, wait, if they don't ha- get any of those, they don't know. Like, it... it's, there's a truth that they don't know. Right. But do you write down the truth or do you assume it doesn't exist? Uh, I probably take a note of the truth if I've decided it. Um, well, that's the thing, though, is that the, the Dungeon World's Apocalypse World thing about play to find out... Uh, you would, in those systems, say, well, I don't know, let's find out and push oh, that direction, that, right? I totally disagree with yeah, that okay, interpretation okay. of... Uh, well, that's why out. we are talking with you, sir. Uh, so, play to find out is about finding out where things go, not necessarily things about the world. Okay. Um, the, the world, the, often the, those can overlap. Um, they're... The systems are very fluid. Like this, I'm not trying to say that Dungeon World you should show up with your whole huge setting, but it actually can still work. Uh, the whole leaving blanks thing is more about leaving yourself room for the improvisation that you will do than a requirement that like you start with something minimal. Um, which is why it's leave blanks, not like only draw the bits <laughs> you need. Um, it, it's sure. important to have that space. And uh, my personal GMing style, and I think Adam Cobalt's as well, we leave a lot of blanks because we just kind of fly the city under our pants and we're like, okay, there's a city here, whatever. The entire rest of the map is a blank. But you can also show up with a bit more of like, oh no, uh, you know, I left some over here because we don't know what's over here and we probably, you know, I'm probably going to come up with something in the moment that I'll need to fill in. But I actually have this entire coast drawn out. So or, I, think, uh, I think my push behind why the GM would not be making the decision themselves and instead leave it up to something else, uh, whether that's another player or some kind of randomness or whatever, is the same idea behind microscopes don't ask people for consensus before you say something, which is you want to come up with weird stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't want somebody to be able, especially with something like magic, you don't want a player to be able to logic out how magic should work. It should be magic and weird and, yeah, sometimes things are just weird. Well, and uh, uh, that was part of why I actually distributed it because it would still be secret. Like, uh-huh. you're, you're not going to know the rules of magic that the other player that the other players invented for you, but that keeps each, each player is of uh, their characters of a different school of magic or something, and that means there's more weirdness going on sure. and that the GM isn't the central point of that weirdness because, uh, at least my experience with gaming, is that a lot of people tend to be weird in 
their own ways. Yeah, true. But you, like, I'm always going to go with a certain kind of weirdness. And you're going to go with a different one. And if we're kind of serving as an assistant GM by tracking the magic for a person, each person's magic is going to be different in weird, they're in different, in different kinds ways. of weird ways. Yeah. That's cool. So um, is this, is, uh, is Mortal Coil available in general? Mortal Coil, I believe, is still available. I think I uh, searched for it just to make sure that it was still around um, before the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I have a copy. I mean, it's available if you can, like, shank me. <laughs> so it's like, it's available at my house. <laughs> totally. Um, well, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ongoing truth. I'm always really interested in artifacts of play mm-hmm. and, and how those evolve over time and having some gigantic piece of thing that you can look at Especially after a long game. Uh, that's been one of the best things about playing uh, Microscope for me or playing even even like Diaspora games. The Diaspora game would generate this enormous artifact every session. Like, here are a bunch of new aspects that got added or removed or changed. And that's that shows you how things change over time. And then after quite a few sessions, you can look back and say, look at this insane yep. story. Whereas... Uh, a lot of RPGs, stuff changes, but you are not forced to notate that change, yep. uh, which is really curious. A, a term that I picked up through John Harper, I think I've heard him attribute it to Vincent Baker, is things that have teeth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so things in RPGs with teeth are things that if you don't do them, the game starts to fall apart in pretty obvious ways. Like, you Somebody who hasn't played the game can probably say, like, we must be missing something. Yeah, yeah, totally. Or, you know, this is obviously a blank. So the thing that you do in most games of taking notes doesn't have teeth. Because you can forget to do it, and the game will kind of have a lack of continuity, maybe. But it probably won't be a big deal. Uh, Whereas things like Mortal Coil with these, you know, lists of what's true and stuff, those... You better be writing that down. It's an important part of play, so there's an artifact of play that's required. Um... The maps in Apocalypse World and Dungeon World fall into that category, at least in my experience, because when I have forgotten the rule to, or you know, the principle of drawing maps, my players start looking at me of like, what, what's happening? What's going on? You know, I, where I am understand. I exactly? Where's the altar? The goblins coming from which direction? And can we flank? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one of those things where that instruction kind of has teeth because the game relies on the. I mean, the jargon for a fictional situation, but, you know, what's happening to the characters, where they actually are and what's around them to such a degree that if you forget that, uh, you, the game kind of starts to clunk along and you can probably say, I should be doing something here. Cool. So, top pick. Oh, man. Uh, we're going all the way to top pick. Oh, do you have, like, several more runners up? I have um, at least two more runners up. Well, I can have two more runners up. I didn't write down notes. So you can never double check me. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, am I doing one? Yeah, yeah, do okay. it. So next up uh, is a game that falls into kind of the same category as Fate for me. Of um, I've played it, I can recommend it to other people, but I don't particularly like it, which is Universalis. Okay. Uh, Universalis is uh, Ralph Mazza and Mike Holmes 2002. Um, it's very much a game of manipulating the elements of a story. Um, in that way, it kind of resembles... Uh, it's basically Microscope Cross Fate, is what it is. It, it is. Universalis is kind of like that. And it doesn't... Uh, the thing that makes Microscope stand out to so many people is the um, the ability to kind of zoom back and forth, which Universalis does not at least have built in. You can right. kind of do it. And Universalis has... Uh, the, since it, it very much works at kind of manipulating the elements of play, one of the elements of play that you can manipulate is kind of the rules of play, uh, at least the way that I've always played it. Um, 
the this was actually one of the first uh, kind of weird games that I played. I sat down at a convention in Bellevue, and somebody was like, "You want to play Universal Alice?" And I was like, "Sure." And one of the <laughs> starting there, oh man! One of the first rules that they were uh, that somebody suggested was because you kind of set up, you know, true things about the setting. But it's kind of true things about the game. Right. Uh, so one of the first rules was we're actually all going to have our own characters, which actually isn't really a default thing in Universalis. Instead, you're all kind of uh, writing it all together, and you can all manipulate everybody and say what happens and all this stuff. Um, which is... It's not really my thing. Universalis is kind of like an overdose on generic, is what it is. It's, you know... Here's here's a game designer's toolkit that doesn't really give you a good set of tools for game design. It gives you a good set of tools for saying that you care about stuff, but not for saying that that stuff's actually going to mesh. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that it's... Uh, a, I, I almost think of it as a, a collaborative writing tool, kind of. It falls, to me, very... Which I don't want to say that it's not a game, because I still think that it comes in with a lot of role-playing game-type things. Right. Uh, I would still call it a role-playing game, but it fits a bit more into the style of play of let's, you know, let's all make stuff sit up. together and make stuff up. Yeah. Um, it Pass the hat is a name that I've... Uh, pass the Viking hat or pass the stick. Uh, those are all terms that I've heard applied to it, and I've realized that's just not my thing. Um, so so to, to segue on that then, uh, I'm going to have a runner-up of Baron Munchausen, okay. uh, which is setting generic. So Baron Munchausen, as written, is, okay, let's tell hilarious stories about kind of musketeer era or, or 1800s era or 1700s era. Uh, Europe and crazy, crazy, uh, wait, what just happened, and are those rumors true, and let me interrupt your story, with a little tiny bit of of mechanical background to make sure that you're just not totally winging it, and that, and that the other people can inject their own, as you know, we've mentioned, weirdness into your story. Uh, but you could totally play Baron Munchausen as Space Marines, uh, mm-hmm. talking about your conquests over uh, yep. the past... 50 years or as, as whatever you could go you could go anywhere you wanted as long as the group understands the setting well enough and that's one of the things some of these generic games like even GURPS with one of the setting books helps keep you in that setting right it helps set everybody on the same tone of you know if you say my uh, samurai knows nuclear uh, physics because that's a skill that's in the main book but you can specifically say, like, oh, no, that has the tech level whatever right. that you can have. And your samurai and... does not have that tech level. So. Yeah. Whereas Baron and Universalis are not going to keep you on track. Neither is Microscope. Neither is Fate in the general sense. Yeah, those are all kind of up to your group to help establish. Right. Um, and, and Microscope does a little bit with a palette setting, which is kind of a... a Formalization of something that's—it's a formalization a of, of your games. setting, but well, that's... no, it's a formalization of the process that I think a lot of people go through. They kind of say like, uh, "Oh, we're doing Space Marines," but it's not uh, Halo Space Marines; it's Games Workshop. No, no, but you can you can overspecify and underspecify in microscope setting, True. right? You can overspecify and be like, "No, we are playing precisely Tolkien universe, Lord of the Rings stuff." Uh, the the untold saga of the third age or whatever. Or you could totally underspecify and say, well, we're not going to have zombies in this game. And that's the only thing anybody ever says. And suddenly you end up with this, well, I don't, you know, everywhere is where we can go. Yeah. Um, so it's not going to help you. It, it'll help you more than the other games because you'll at least have an explicit time of, okay, we're going to say some things. Um, yeah. But yeah. So my last runner-up. Uh, is something that is very hard to find. Um, 
or possibly very easy to find. Uh, it's a thing that Adam Coble does when he's bored at conventions. Nice! Uh, I, I do not know that it has a name other than the thing that I've seen Adam do with uh, Emily at Packs You're going to make these show notes so hard to write. Uh, in an Oscon. <laughs> um, so basically what happens when, uh, like, we were waiting for a ride to our hotel in the middle of the night uh, was Adam sits down with some dice and a note card and says, uh, okay, roll for your, uh, and name something that your character would have, and picks up a dice, and maybe because he's really good at this stuff, gives you, like, the GM, like, oh, no, no, not a D6, a D8, or whatever, and just kind of arbitrarily makes up things that you roll, and if you roll the highest number, it must be pretty good, unless he told you to roll a small guy in the, a dice. Um, and then he describes some crazy, you have a note card with, like, a few things about your character. You're like, how cool am I? Uh, what's my... Uh, what is my beard? What, how, how many points of beard do I have? Um, and then puts you in some situation and you say what you do and he maybe tells you to roll one of those things or roll a dice and compare it to one of those things and just makes it oh, all gosh. up as you go along. The, the, enti- the real thing is the conversation of using, uh, I want to say role-playing tropes. Like the idea that you probably roll things and you probably see an, a good outcome if you roll high or low or close to something uh, and that you say what you do and then he sets a new situation and he just rolls with that. Uh, and it's like, uh, I try to make friends with them. Okay, uh, how are you doing that? Uh, I hand him the leg of the guy that I beat up earlier. Uh, okay, roll a D6. Roll beard. D6. Yeah, roll your beard or like roll a D6 to see how many legs they already have and if they want another one. Um, it, it's in some ways the essence of role playing. <laughs> like it, it, it's the most generic system because all it says is you sit down with some people who know what role-playing is and do role-playing things for a while. Uh, and it's uh, hilarious and fun. And it's awesome. And it's right on the edge of what I would consider a system. It, so this is so a I, problem. I, I guess I, I, would have to, I would have to talk to Adam Koval. Because the big question about a system to me, and if we had way more time, maybe, maybe another question could be, uh, what is a system... We may uh, have to branch out into things that can be answered by things other than specific games. Yeah, because yeah. when you talk about things like, you know, to talk about two of the things we've already done, when you talk about GURPS versus D20, like, I can say go out and buy GURPS, and you can find a book, and it will say GURPS, and you can pick it up and have GURPS. D20, you can't do that. Like, you can go out and you can get D&D. D20 Modern comes close. Right, but it's, it's still 20, not... True 20 was actually published. And As True 20? Uh, I believe that they came out with a physical book. I know they had plans to. I don't know if it actually ever came out. I think but it, you know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's not something that you can go out and get. It's a family of systems that are all closely related. Mm-hmm. And so Cobalt's system is probably like that. A family of systems that are all very closely related. See, I feel like I could actually write up the things he's doing to a degree that uh, with a similar amount of GM skill to a person who's good at running D&D or something, they could actually run a good adventure with it. Oh, that's a good... Uh, you, you write that up and post it on well, the Well, because it, it, the, things that, uh, the things that are important to the system are not so much the which dice are you rolling for which thing at which... Uh, the which time is actually maybe more important, mm-hmm. but... 3d6 or 1d20 or higher low is good. None of that's important. It would look like the paranoia rule book is what it would look like. Uh, I think it would even be less structured, but I, you, in some ways it would be the most micro of micro games and it all fits into your head. Uh, like I've seen him run it. And if somebody ever 
sits down with me to do it. Uh, maybe that's what we'll do right after recording the podcast. I'll run Adam's weird little thing for you. Uh, and the, the biggest upside to it, if you're playing with Adam, and the biggest downside to considering it a real portable game is that the person running it has to be pretty good at running it. Right. Uh, it's, it's not a game that gives you a whole lot of um, help. Just straight up RPG improv. But as uh, in some ways, the idea of the the basic the system here is really the basics of the conversation. One person, or I guess you could probably do it with more, uh, are going to be players who are going to say the things that their character says, thinks, and does, uh, and will have limited, if any, ability to establish things outside of that. The GM establishes everything else, creates a situation that those characters will be in some way in conflict with, even if we all kind of agree it's a silly conflict, like, uh, so you're at the cafeteria and you want more sprinkles, how do you get more sprinkles? Like, it can be really ridiculous, or you could you could probably really run this I as a dungeon adventure or a cyberpunk adventure, I think that if you dialed down the silliness a little bit and just sat down with people, uh, a fairly skilled GM, sat down with a a table of people and just said, uh, okay, you're all um, sharp uh, or you're all like fast, tough, uh, and strong. Roll the d6 for each of them to see how how much of them you are. Okay, each of you choose a job within the city. You can be this, this, or this. Like you can make up a lot of that. And then the important thing is that conversation. And that conversation is not something that Adam invented. It's the core of role playing. Uh, but the cool thing that he does is just say, "Let's forget about all the other structure to it and just have that conversation for right. a while." That's awesome. Okay. Primary. Okay. We're low on time. Yes, we are low on time. Uh, this may be one of our longest episodes. Uh, so my top one... is the best so uh, far. This is actually pretty awesome. Uh, my top one is Other Kind. Vincent Baker, 2005. <laughs> um, awesome. So Other Kind, uh, there's there's kind of two ways to look at it. There is a game. You, If you Google Other Kind, it'll be, uh, it'll be in our show notes. Uh, there's a PDF that has a bit more setting and a bit more detail on it, but at its core, there's a thing that people refer to as Other Kind Dice, which get used in uh, Ghost Echo and stuff like that, um, which is a really nice dice system uh, that you can kind of use to do just about anything. Um, so this one kind of the thing that we're talking about with uh, like D6 and a lot of these games that make them stand out is that if they're generic, you have to provide a lot of setting and a lot of um, kind of uh, have the ability to add to. And other kind boils that all the way down to here's just a way to resolve dice. Um, and the cool thing about it, basically you establish what's going on that needs to be rolled about uh, in the post from 2005 that has just the dice. Uh, the other kind of dice on Vincent's blog. Uh, he uses stake setting, which is a term that I know that kind of moved away from because it's all kinds of loaded. Basically, figure out what the hell you're rolling for. Um, once you know which that... Is, which is surprisingly important for, for how little press you really get around it, right? Yeah. Like, like uh, you, you grow up rolling for... Well, I'm going to climb up on top of that roof, and you roll dice before asking the DM what in the world is going on. Because, you know, of course, I'm rolling to climb up on top of that roof. It's the failure state that people don't end up thinking about enough, I think. That's part of the big problem with a lot of these generic games, is that so many of them end up giving you a lot of mechanic, and not so much of how do you deal with uh, figuring out what's in the action and what to roll for and all that stuff. And it doesn't cover that at all, just like my other favorite, Adam's weird thing. Right. Has, <laughs> isn't it down. Yeah, like, <laughs> you better know which things are fun to roll for. Sure. Um, 
But uh, then you have to identify two challenges, things that could uh, basically go wrong with it. Um, and you roll three dice, assign one of uh, a die to each thing that you're doing. Um, one and two are bad, three and four are okay, five and six are good, is basically the, the short version of it. Sure. Um, his original post goes into a little bit more on that, and you know, oh, on challenges it might be only good or bad, but I think it's easiest to just say, basically, low number's bad, high number's good, middle <laughs> number's... Uh, um, and then you go from there. Uh, so you're... It has, you can see Apocalypse World coming through there, um, both in the kind of mental result and in the uh, picking your priorities, um, which sometimes gets considered as like a metagamey thing where you, you're you saying which things come true, but I think of it as your character saying, oh, well, uh, I know the crocodiles are beneath me, but I'm not worried about them, so I put my low die there, even though, because I wasn't worried about the crocodiles. Right. Um, it In the generic, the kind of two types of generic we've talked about, uh, Setting-wise, it kind of works for anything with, like, drama and tough choices. Uh, but it gives you no help other than the fact that you're going to have to make tough choices to get there. And then in the modifiable, kind of hackable side of it, obviously this is a super easy thing. And the larger other kind, the other kind that actually has a bit of kind of setting information and stuff, um, you actually have more dice that can be assigned different ways. And there's some kind of default challenges that you use all this stuff. A uh, really easy hack that you put on top of it is, you know, oh, if you're skilled in that area, you get to roll one extra die, you still only assign three. Right. All kinds of stuff. Uh, and this is something that Vincent and we were good about, systems that are transparent in such a way that you can see lots of ways to add on to them. Which this, is why my primary is Apocalypse World. Of course Family of games. Yes. Um, so Apocalypse World itself is, like... Not, no, Apocalypse World is not generic. Apocalypse World itself is going to tell a very specific type of story. It has probably a stronger voice than any other game we've talked about. For sure. Even compared to Mouse Guard, stronger voice. But, as Luke Crane has said, it is one of the most hackable games out right now, next to Fate. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I, I don't know anybody who's made it out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the thing about Apocalypse World is, is if you want to play a, a particular type of game, like Fate Accelerated, you're going to have to make that game up around mm -hmm. the system. But Apocalypse World, you can probably find somebody's hack <laughs> that is that system, right? Uh, I, I don't know about any that do D&D &D well, but, you know, there's a couple of really good Shadowrun hacks and stuff like that. Yeah, all the D&D &D, uh, Apocalypse World <laughs> games are kind of rough. But yeah, uh. so, I mean, and, you know, of course, Dungeon World is amazing and, and Monster Hearts is amazing and, and, and uh, Blades in the Dark just came out as awesome and Worldwide Wrestling just came out as awesome. And all of these takes this system and push it to do very interesting different things. And they push it farther than D20 games end up pushing D20. Um, which is makes it a really loose family of games. Yeah. But it's not so loose that you can't go play Apocalypse World, move over to Monster Hearts, and at least, you know, get some footing immediately. And the the tweaks that Avery made to make it work are are beautiful and really cool and and are enough so that you can sit down and the DM will go, okay, have you played this other game? Well, here are the things you need to know about, and here's the new genre. Let's go. Yeah. And if you wanted to make your own hack of Apocalypse World, it's a matter of sit down and play the base system and then just start adding the stuff that you like and remove the stuff that you don't like and just morph this thing. I actually think the hacking process is a little different. Oh, go for um, it. You've actually done it. So Well, so, okay. 
I have a, hu- a queue of things that I need to get back to from things you just said. First okay, of all, cool, yeah, yeah. as far as uh, recent cool Apocalypse World games, have to mention Night Witches, which yeah, is yeah. Oh, yeah, one totally. of my top things to play right now. Um, Jake, uh, Jason Morningstar. Jason Morningstar. Uh, and I always like to give Steve Sagetti credit because he's hugely involved in these games. Um, awesome game. Uh, I've managed... Uh, I haven't actually played I think I'm going to play tomorrow night, most likely. Sweet. Um, but I have to bring it up purely based on the quality of, of all things the back cover. I recently got my copy, read the back cover. It was already a game that I was interested in playing. I, I almost had to just like drop everything because the back cover is a beautiful way to sell you on a game, communicate the game really well, and make you excited to play it. The topic is so interesting, too. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I guess we can't men- mention that without going into it just a tiny bit. It's a game uh, based on a historical group of... Russian bombers uh, who were all women in basically repurposed World War One planes defending their homeland uh, in night raids because these planes would be shot down instantly <laughs> during the day uh, and they uh, were so feared by the Germans that they started calling them night witches uh, in German obviously but I'm not going to butcher that pronunciation <laughs> um, which is just it's the most Janie, Jason Morningstar set up for a game because it's based on wonderful history it's well researched there's lots in there about um, keeping it just historical enough he's really good about boiling in uh, the details that make you feel like you're playing the right game without also making you feel like you have to read a textbook Right, and it's it's games like you know before you continue, it's games like Night Witches and Blades uh, by John Harper that really show you how far Apocalypse World can be pushed without breaking. Uh, all, Murderous Ghost goes even further. Like there's oh, there's all yeah. these games, uh, and that actually, um, I guess first I've got to give the di- uh, disclaimer that I know less, at least for my published work, about starting an Apocalypse World hack. Because Dungeon World started as somebody else's game. Right. Uh, it was originally Tony Dollar's game. Uh, Adam and I both played it at a Go Play Northwest a while ago. Oh, jeez. A long time ago now. <laughs> and thought it was so great that uh, afterwards I was going to Gen Con that year and I told Tony I was going to make up character sheets for it. Because his original draft, you had to have a copy of AD&D to play with. And I was like, I don't want to drag that around. Um, and then I kind of thought, ooh, I want to make... Uh, I'm, I started adding things. You know, I wanted to make... Uh, a few more things more apocalypse worldy. So there were actually a few more moves pre-written as opposed to just the core moves. Um, there were like advancement moves, because I think he also wrote the class moves, the original ones, not the ones that, for the most part that we have. Uh, and then Adam, <laughs> I posted a picture of them on Twitter, and Adam Cobalt replies with like, oh, those are cool, you want some input on them. And then now we sell books. Well, so that, um, that so talk to me about how this is different from my, my comment. So the... From our point, mm-hmm. since we got to start from Tony, uh, it was different. Um, subsequently, unfortunately none of these are published, so I can't say that this process works better or worse. The thing that you start with is not Apocalypse World's core, because that already speaks in so many ways to the things that Apocalypse World does. But like Simple World? Uh, not even that. Um, the thing to This is part of why Apocalypse World is such a genius, generic, in air quotes yeah. that seem you making game is that it forces you to think about the genre that you're trying to move to sure 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 if you're trying to do um, like one thing that I've been messing with recently is uh, a space game in a specific genre based on um, a work that somebody else is working on uh, I've been tinkering with this idea um, 
and to do that, you don't start with, okay, let's take the apocalypse world moves and, uh, you know, tweak them until they work. You start with, um, at least for this one, I've started with actually the uh, GM's agenda and principles because you're trying to set across what does this game do um, and how what is the conversation about and then the rule the core moves and if there are classes or whatever that plug into that are all things that you think about later because they're how do you add more to that conversation. So um, the so, other oh sorry no, okay. I, yeah you and, jump and this is going to go long but we have heard from our readers that they don't mind if it goes long so this will it. be probably our longest episode <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. So this speaks to general game design principles though, right? So there's this paper, there's this paper called uh, Mechanics, Dynamics and Aesthetics that got printed by somebody who was looking I believe mainly at video games. Uh, and the idea is that as designers, it's really easy to focus on mechanical details because they're the things that you can touch, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I know that I can add another die here or change this modifier or add a move, and those are really easy to see and change. But really what you want to hit the players with is the aesthetics of play, which, uh, I can't, oh man, I can't remember the author, but if you look up MDA on Google, you'll find it. And we can include a link in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Um, the aesthetics are how you feel in play and what the experience is like in play. And the mechanics, you know, create in a way when they intersect with play, when the mechanics intersect with the players, that's going to create these aesthetics. But actually, you know, if I want to create a horror game, I, I can't, you know, drop a mechanic in and say, okay, now I've got a horror game. It's like uh, I had this big conversation about Dread after that episode, mm -hmm. uh, and people were like, well, you know, Jenga creates the horror ep uh, the horror game. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, no. Je if you just play Jenga, there is no horror there. There's tension, but there's no horror. Uh, and and it's, it's the game... It's the rest of the game that's creating this particular aesthetic. And so talking about GM principles, that's a way of framing your initial design around what is the aesthetic of this game going to be, and how do I... And then you can evaluate all of your other stuff based on the aesthetic. And as a role-playing game, it's way easier to do that kind of thing because the GM is somebody that's sitting there all the time evaluating, is this really producing the effect that I want? Mm -hmm. Whereas in a board game or a video game, uh, you better do it well beforehand. Yeah, I mean, all RPGs are tools for the GM. And I, I think that the, the point that I'm trying to make is that if you're hacking Apocalypse World for something else, your best bet is to um, start from close to scratch, uh, start minimally and not from Apocalypse World. Right, right. Apocalypse World already has so many things built in. Um, in some ways, uh, if anything, maybe you uh, start with a few ideas of stats you want and um, act under fire slash defy danger as kind of like, this is the only thing we're going to do. And then you as the GM have some notes. Like I'm not saying that you write out your principles per se unless for some reason you know you're trying to make a thing that other people will play, but if you're just kind of uh, making your own Apocalypse World game, you're, you start from the core and build out. Um, oh yeah, totally. Ideally. And, uh, and you, you want to evaluate play in respect to those principles. Like, if you if you published a game and you've given it to somebody, uh, there's not much you can do then about the principles. They're, they're kind of fixed. Yeah. But if you're still messing with this thing, then you can say, okay, are these principles producing the game that I want? Are these... Are these rules of the moves and the rules and the stats 
Do they work with the principles to help me produce the game that I want? Are the principles off? Do I need to add some, move some, change some? But the principles are only part of it, right? They're only how the GM can kind of slightly divert play, whereas the rest of the rules are going to give your other players a whole bunch of other stuff about, well, what can I do? What should I do? What things should I be thinking about? It's less about the things that are necessary for play than for which things you need to think about early on. Right. Because a lot of... Um, it's a priming question. The, the things that I see a lot of people spending time on are like specific moves and, uh, you know, how do I... Especially if you're really going from the direction that I don't recommend. You know, how do I make act under fire work in my game? Or right. Like how, uh, how do I seize by force in my game? Which isn't the thing to start with. Right. Um, it's possible your game will never need seize by force. Exactly. Um, and it's possible, I mean, there are diceless uh, Apocalypse World games. Like, you may not even need uh, Act Under Fire slash Defy Danger. Um, what would you say is the core of Apocalypse World? Oh, so this is, uh, I think I've actually told this story a little bit before, that uh, in at PAX somebody came up to me and thought that the core was, like, rolling 2d6 and adding a stat. Um which, which is understandable, right? The, yeah, the, no, that's... Uh, the majority of Apocalypse World is, I want to do stuff... Oh, that triggers a move. Roll 2d6. Compare. Okay. So so credit where due. Um, th- a lot of how I think of uh, these levels of Apocalypse World is based on Jonathan Walton's thoughts on it. Um, I wish I could like point you at one of his games or something instead of just kind of uh, saying that they... Um, that you should look him up because he uh, he has several games, but none of them are um, particularly recent or easy to find. Um, but anyway, the core of Apocalypse World is the conversation, like the game says. And the first thing you need to think about is what is the conversation about in your game? Uh, what are people talking about, and how is that conversation divided? Because this is a thing that uh, Night Witches, for instance, gets into. Is that the more uh, kind of classical GM player divide, or is it more of a rotating structure to who's saying what? Is it kind of a co-GM thing, any one of these? Um, So you're starting with that conversation and then building out into, okay, once we have some responsibilities in that conversation, um, let's think about what those people do in the general way to drive that forward. Kind of like the player, if... You go with kind of a typical player-GM divide. The player is probably saying what the character says, thinks, and does. Uh, And then the GM, you probably tell them you have a bit more of like an agenda principles kind of thing. Uh, Or maybe it's entirely different and you're doing that differently. Um, And then from that point, you keep on building out into uh, things like moves. Um, You don't even go to stats yet because maybe you don't have stats. Like maybe your moves entirely uh, revolve around... Maybe your moves are just... When a certain person says a certain thing, the other person gets to say one of these things. Do you consider triggered moves part of the core then? Um, not like, necessarily. Like we're I, talking I the presentation, the the idea that at some point you add things uh, that modify the conversation in a uh, a ruleish way. Because because the rules have to interact with the conversation, or there's not much system. Like I, I know we're talking about core, and core is a hard word to use. Uh, because we're going back to the burning wheel concentric circle kind of discussion, exactly. right? The conversation is the middle concentric circle, and but the rules have to interact with that conversation to make it a game. Yes. Uh, you can't just say, have a conversation about uh, Germans in World War II, and that's, that's not a role-playing game yet. 
Um, ah, I think that they're... I'm trying to think of the weird example where the uh, rules have nothing to do with the conversation. Um, actually, I think that... So this is a problem on what do you consider a Apocalypse World-based game. Sure, sure, sure. So, like I was saying earlier, part of the reason that Apocalypse World makes such a great generic game is because it forces you to think about game design. Right. That's really the the key thing that it does. Even to, just as a GM, it forces you to think about game exactly. design. And especially if you're hacking it, it forces you to answer questions about game design. Right. Um, and that's why I think it made the top of your list. Because as a generic game, <laughs> which it isn't, but if you try <laughs> to make something else from it, it gives you very clear prompts on doing that and forces you into some generally productive ways to do it. They're not the right. only way to do it. They make you think about things um, in certain ways. So, powered by the apocalypse world at that point, uh, powered by the apocalypse, based yeah, on yeah, let's talk about it that way, uh, becomes increasingly broad because if you're thinking about the answering those questions in that way, you could end up with something that I, I would say. If you wanted to be, it becomes increasingly less useful, but super technical. Right. You could say that uh, games that have just kind of been through this thought process are in some way powered by the apocalypse. Right. And they could have uh, move things that aren't triggered by the conversation that they a player just says. Now this rule happens. Sure. It sure. could be entire like uh, in some way that is triggered by the conversation that somebody has to say something but that's kind of a trivial sense of it um, but I think that practically what most people think of as powered by the apocalypse does involve things that are triggered by uh, the conversation and this is an area that I think people could work more on most people think of it as things that are triggered from the fiction which for Dungeon World is something that we very much stuck with because it's very much a fiction first kind of game but you can totally have powered by the apocalypse world games that trigger off of the conversation around the game right um, I, I could even now I'm trying to think of weird ways that you could hack it. You could have uh, apocalypse world moves that trigger off of real real world things like a timer going off or well blades. Like that. Yeah, yeah, that would be oh man, blades kind of does this with uh, with prep moves with with flashbacks yeah. because the way that that generally gets triggered is not you know oh I have a flashback now. It generally gets triggered because you say well it would be really nice if blah maybe we can flashback yeah let's flashback which is kind of a meta conversation but not as hardcore as when something happens stuff. I do have a game that I'm working on Mm -hmm. the Empire's game uh, where we're talking about modifying the conversations with with decks of cards and, and hands and when the deck runs out Stuff happens, and yep. that modifies the conversation. Um, but so that's this is the thing about talking about the core of Powered by the Apocalypse is that I mean the conversation like that's the core of most role playing games, but you never think about it. You don't often think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And then talking about triggering things by the conversation, that's also part of most role playing games. But you also don't think about it that way. You think about it as I am going to exercise a mechanic in quite a few role playing games. Mm-hmm. The the entire idea of okay, we're going to play like D and D four E really pushed that particular mindset all the way. Right? I'm going to look down. I have these seven moves. Which card do I want to play? And when I play that card, that causes stuff to happen in the game. Whereas the Apocalypse, Apocalypse World kind of reverses that and says, well, we're going to talk about stuff, and every so often that stuff is going to intersect with the mechanics, and the mechanics are going to change what we can talk about, 
and then we go back into talking about stuff. So I had uh, a brief game design that never came to fruition that was quite interesting um, that was based on kind of a uh, 8-bit fantasy theme um, where each character sheet was uh, square um, and had basically the basic moves on part of it and then your three levels on the other quadrants. Uh, so you'd, st- you'd basically turn your sheet. Actually, it might have been four so that you just turn it all the way around. Because you love doing layout first. Because you level up as you turn the sheet. Yeah. Um, and it, I started writing up moves in what I, at the time, thought was an equivalent way to Apocalypse World. And since it... First of all, it didn't work. Um, <laughs> and I know why now. I wrote up things that were almost more like 4E powers that were like, uh, if you want to um, push somebody back, describe your feat of strength and roll, blah, 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 which is a really subtle difference, but it changes the conversation. Right, because it means that I'm going to press these keys and that's going to change stuff. Whereas Apocalypse World, the system really only works if everything is sitting on the conversation level and the mechanics are are not tools that you use first. They are tools that you use subconsciously and, and sometimes consciously, but first and foremost, they are ways for the conversation to expect the game space. I think that's true of all the Apocalypse World games that we've seen so far, but I, I really hesitate to say that that's, that's true. That's always true. Yeah, sure. because I, I feel like, like I was saying earlier, that so much of what this game boils down to is... Uh, a way of thinking about design and that cutting off things that um, branch earlier, that that don't do certain things that we're used to seeing with Apocalypse World games isn't really fair. I mean, I I, uh, had... (laughs) I hang out with uh, John Harper and... Um, Paul Riddle a lot, and John we were, Harper being the Blades in the Blades Dark person, Paul Riddle, and Paul Riddle being undying, undying yeah. and we had conversations uh, in the early days of people packing Apocalypse World. I think before Dungeon World had even seen print about uh, you know why are Apocalypse World moves all uh, based on the fiction? Like we all tend to like that, but there's nothing that means that they couldn't be based on the meta conversation, right? Um, we also said in this. <laughs> undying, why couldn't moves be uh, diceless in ways that Apocalypse World moves aren't? Because there right. are some diceless moves in Apocalypse World. And there's uh, lots of them in Undying because there's no dice. Because there's no dice. And then uh, in Blades in the Dark, uh, John is splitting off you know, the initial trigger of the move, which finds out, you know, does it happen, and possibly the effect which could be scaled, although he's reconsidering that in the community right now, so I'm curious oh, to see what that's going to Oh, that's interesting, because that might affect, uh, I'm doing a Blades in the Dark hack that, that uh, was going to make heavy use of that. This is a really cool, uh, I, I'm loving this, what I've seen of this system so far, uh, show up on the community, the discussion around just this topic, talking about removing dice from effect, has been one of the most interesting game design discussions I have seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in particular, uh, John is a really nice guy, and is engaging, which is very hard to do in this kind of conversation. Yes, and uh, I mean, I think he's particularly doing that because Blades, he's made a a deliberate effort for outreach. Um, So he's really trying to, you know, not... uh, not slip into the kind of, like, I'm a game designer, I can... Because 
I mean, that that's an easy thing to slip into. Yeah, I've, I, I've been, I've been thinking about this game for a long time. What you're saying is wrong, and I know it because of all of these reasons, so I'm going to disengage. Yeah. 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 So, Blades in the Dark has been around practically forever. It's, it's, it's what game designs do. Yeah, you are correct as to why I feel Apocalypse World, the system, is totally most generic, and because it deals with the problem that Fate and GURPS cannot, don't deal with well, which is that Fate and GURPS say... Really, you want to build a system on this, but you can fumble through playing the base game. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that with Apocalypse World. Like, even uh, McDonald's simple, uh, simple World, which is, okay, let's try and reduce this to the smallest possible thing. Even that has to start with principles, which is, what is this game going to be about? Mm-hmm. Which means you have to have that conversation to the point where there's a genre and there's a what this conversation is going to have and how do things trigger and what are we talking about? Yep. Though I, I do think that a lot of Apocalypse World games have unfortunately been straightjacketed into the lingo, um, which is a nice thing that Blades is breaking out of and, uh, oh man, I have a slew of future projects that will break out of it in different ways, hopefully, if they ever make it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the idea that we... Uh, and Dungeon World contributed to this way too much, that you always do agenda principle uh, GM moves, um, calling things moves. Uh, the outline of, this, of the original books. Yeah, yeah um, all of that for Dungeon World. <laughs> when we made Dungeon World, we thought that our audience was people who mostly knew Apocalypse World. So we basically kept a lot of the same structure and lingo because we, we wanted to make it a complete book because we're very much fans of, you know, if you get Dungeon World first, you should be able to understand it. But that wasn't, like, we, we anticipated our audience having some familiarity there. And since our audience is, like, dramatically larger than Apocalypse <laughs> Worlds at this point, uh, I really wish that we would have thought through presenting the game um, in our own way and in the game the, the way that most suits the game as right. opposed to saying oh Apocalypse World you've got agenda principles moves etc etc um, yeah Man, I'd love to have I'd love to do an episode with with Adam as well mm-hmm. um, and just talk about things that you might change if you were to do Dungeon World again oh gosh uh, that's a dangerous thing because we I think we're, we try to not think about that too much because it's easy oh, to it's get so into hard. The, yeah. it's easy to get into the pointless revisions mm-hmm. um we, oh, I don't want to talk don't, about, don't talk about too it much, now. but I will say that one of the things that we thought about is that the fighter isn't the only way that we could have approached the fighter. So sure. uh, our first supplement, Inglorious, which covers war, has a kind of war fighter that is a different approach to the fighter, um, which I, I like, because not because I think it's a better approach necessarily, but because uh, the fighter of all the classes was maybe the most constrained into um, taking a, a wider idea into a smaller one. So I'm glad to have another way to do that. Cool. Um, yeah. Oh man. I so I, I love this space. Uh, so we're we are we are so over, and it's awesome. Uh, what do you What do you think? Do Do you think Apocalypse World fits in this category? I. Uh, it's a real stretch. I I would not call it the best generic game, because uh, by the types of the the types of genericism that we talked about kind of the uh apply it to different settings that still fit the same genre or um easily extend the moves it it hit or easily extend the rules it easily hits the easy extending of the rules um but the especially from the core book it is so much in that voice and setting well so so here's my metaphor uh 
and it would take me an hour to really explain it, but I'm just going to go for it and we can talk about it offline with anybody that really cares to get into it and has listened this long because you guys are awesome. Uh, the metaphor is compile time, run time, and, and parse time. So the idea with stretching metaphors that far, but no, it's it's it. a good time. Uh, so so the idea with with programming is that you can make you can make your tools do things at different periods of time. So you just wrote your code. Uh, the program that you drop it into can do stuff while it's reading your code. It could do stuff while it's compiling your code. It can do stuff while it's running your code, basically. And at what time you do things really forces the language to be different, forces the way that you write stuff to be different. And I feel like Apocalypse World is pre-compile time generic. Yeah. Whereas, whereas something like Fate or GURPS is runtime generic. Fate or GURPS says, here's all of this system and it's pretty much fixed. But in the game, you can do whatever you want. Whereas Apocalypse World says, here's all the system and you better mess with the system. Because once you've messed with the system, then everything else is pretty much fixed, and the stuff that you do in the game is going to work But in better. that sense, all games are generic. Uh, Apocalypse sort of just particularly good at being generic. That's what is, I'm saying! Which is exactly what I said earlier. Good. Yeah. Uh, like I kind of tried to open with, okay. uh, either no game... Uh, it's true that both no games are generic and that all games are generic. But I feel like, uh, I feel like Apocalypse World does the no games are generic path Hacking Apocalypse World leads you to a much better game most of the time than most other games hacking. So, hacking D20. Yes, that's easy. The basic tool, roll D20, compare it to number. That doesn't help you think of a good game, right? It's a tool, but it doesn't help you think of a good game. Fade and GURPS, they give you a tool. It doesn't help you think of a good game. Apocalypse I... World, as you said helps you work towards a good game because it forces you to think about certain things. I disagree slightly. Like, I, I love Apocalypse World. I think it's a oh. brilliant game, but I also don't want... Like, that's not the only way to approach designing a game. It's really good sure. at helping a, a style of design that has been very productive for a lot of people, including oh, I myself. I don't want to say that it shuts the door on further RPG design. Well, no, but, but I, I actually think that D20 enables a different sort of game design, just one that was not as productive for as many people. And that I don't like very much. Um, yeah, so, sure. so that's why. So, I, so then, do we, do we call it... Do we call it a draw? A a there is a an all games are best at are at generic design. No, and stop. I, some games are definitely easier to adapt. That is obviously true. All games are generic, though. But I would argue that my top choice, other kind, beats out Apocalypse World purely because it precedes it by the same author and shares some like game design DNA. <laughs> so in some ways, I'm just it's, jumping further back. In some ways, Apocalypse World is just a hack of other kind. At which point. You know, it's all hacks all the way all down. All the way down. No, actually, that's something that I've always been curious about. I hate to insert this, but I've got two things that have to come do out it, do as it. rewards for people who listen this long. <laughs> First of all, and if anybody hears this and hasn't already heard me ask this question, I always wonder, since every, basically all the role-playing games we have can trace at least a line of thought back to D&D. Oh, man. Is we're there gonna, another? We're going to make this a really long cast. But there, I don't think we have an answer to this one. Is there another tradition of something that we would recognize as RPG that doesn't even owe its existence to like the idea of D and D? Yes, in some way, diplomacy. But that's just tracing it further back. No, no, no. Diplomacy is a precedent of D and D. Diplomacy is a precedent of other games that came out around D and D, and D and D killed off those other lines. So the so uh, go read playing at the world for anybody who hasn't. Please, we're both going off. Of. Please read playing at the world. Well, I'm going off with some other stuff too. So so the early role playing game 
families were mostly either tactical combat or kind of this overall kind of uh, Kriegspiel style. I'm going to describe what my character does uh, over the course of the day, and I have no idea what else is going on, and the DM's going to make stuff up. And But the, the big difference between the two is that D&D is this conversation that you're having at a table with a bunch of people and the DM, and you get immediate feedback on what's going on. Whereas the Kriegspiel background ones are, we're having this conversation by way of post, most often, uh, or, or some other kind of asynchronous messaging, and you will find out what happens to you in a couple days when they get back to you by letter, which is the big break between diplomacy and D&D, right? Diplomacy is... Uh, we're going to all send in our orders and have this big political conversation over the top of everything. And then all of our stuff gets sent back and we find out what happens. And On Guard, the 70s game, is kind of a hint at what stuff might have turned into if that mm -hmm. was a much more solid line. And the Napoleonics game that was going on, I can't remember who was running it at, in the 70s oh, when yes. D&D was going. Yeah. That's another one of those kind of games where the game is not... Uh, our big party is going into the dungeon and doing cool stuff. The game is, here is this fictional scenario, and we're going to play it out to the logical conclusion and then stop. Like, I, I agree that those are different branching points from this long history, but I still feel like uh, they are... They're really close to each other. They, they're really close. I guess I'm looking for, like, was there... I, I, the thing that I always imagine is some, like... For some reason in my head, it's always Eastern European villagers who have like a, a game of stones that controls who says what's next in a story or well, something like that. Have you that. read Push? Uh, the, there, was a, there was a, you know, the start of a role-playing magazine called Push. Jonathan Walden. Yeah. yeah the, there we go. Yeah. See, Jonathan, you just come up again and again. Uh, the, it's, it's on, it's on drive-thru, I think, right now. And one of the games in Push is this kind of Eastern setting, what if dancing was the start of RPGs. And mm -hmm. it's one of the most interesting reads I've ever had. The, the problem with this kind of historical research, and maybe we should just get a hold of the playing of the world guy, is that D&D came out and just so took over things mm -hmm. that it's hard to dissect it from anything that might have existed beforehand. Yeah, and I think the things you're uh, talking about are all interesting. They're, they're touched on in Planet of the World. I'm sure John Peterson will do more research on them because he's awesome. Uh, but they they stay closer to the history of d and I'm, I'm looking for something that like... Way different. Way... That, that somehow arranged to end up somewhere in the same place. Maybe it's not an adventure game. Like, for some reason I always imagine that it's more likely to be like a fiasco-style game or something. But that, that somehow ended up somewhere around there. I actually have a couple of leads, but they've been a pain to research. If anybody knows stuff, let Sage know exactly. so, that he can, so that he can know for sure. And then, finally, as an Easter egg for anybody who has <laughs> sat through this much podcast, the game that I mentioned earlier, the 8-bit one that I was working on, the, the four-sided character sheet, uh, the cool thing about it, it was called The uh, Princesses in the Tower. Um, the, uh, the, well, the princess is in the tower, or the princesses in the tower? Uh, the princess is in the tower. Okay. Uh, your 8-bit Zelda lookalikes going into a tower to save the princess. Um, the reason that it, the character sheets were square, not just so you could rotate them to level up, but because the way the game was distributed was it as an origami tower. So you folded up all of them into these... Uh, you had uh, each... <laughs> 
class was different, and then one of them was a GM sheet. So awesome. there were four of them, and they all stood up into like a pagoda tower. I think it was the name of the fold or whatever. Uh, and yes, it was my game that was distributed to maybe the only copy I ever made as Oregon. <laughs> That's way cool. So on that note, uh, we have wasted enough of your time. The most generic system is the one you create yourself. <laughs> uh, and yeah, get a hold of us on usual channels. Lots of stuff to talk about here, and we didn't go into as much detail as we would like. Yep. Uh, we could talk about game design for years. Um, and I think we may have to start at, uh, going with questions that aren't just what game is whatever. Uh, it's true. We can do that. Nobody will mind. Can. Yeah, which just means that more people can ask us questions. So, as always, find us on uh, Twitter and Google+. Uh, leave us a review if you're feeling nice on iTunes or wherever you listen. And uh, until next time. Sweet. See you.